Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Now here's Pastor J.D. Griffin. Well, welcome. We have a, a few special guests in the house this morning. Um, we have some incredible friends from Antioch Norman, Antioch Oklahoma City, and Antioch Houston in the house. And we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you have been loving on our city and, and serving our church so well. And we really appreciate it. Uh, we love your leaders. Um, you guys really do sit in incredible incredible houses, and um, we're just overwhelmed that you would come and take time out of your busy week, take time out of your careers, and come and love on the city of Austin. We think it matters. We think it's going to make a lasting difference, and uh, we're better because of it. Uh, It's probably one of the coolest things uh, about doing this thing called church, not just saying, hey, I just want to go plant a church by myself, but saying, no, I want to do it in the context of a community and a group of people where we're going to lean on each other and love on each other and have each other's backs. And that's what the Antioch movement has really been built on, is building a community across cities of people that are like-minded, that are saying, man, we're going to go after Jesus with everything that we have. We're going to support each other every way that we can. Uh, and it's so fun when we have these moments, these, these collective moments of coming together and realizing like, man, look, we've never met each other, but I feel like we're family because we're believing for and leaning into the same types of things together. And so welcome, and we hope you feel at home. We hope you have a blast. And I spoke to some of you guys this morning. We also hope you leave extremely refreshed. Uh, we hope that your heart is filled with the power and the passion of Jesus and that God does something in you that has a lasting effect that you take home with you and be Because you are here with us this morning, you get to be like, wow, I'm about to impart something back into wherever I'm headed, you know? And so welcome, all right, a big welcome, a big hug from me to you, okay? Uh, Now, we've been in a series of talks we kicked off a couple of weeks ago called The Dirty Gospel. How many of you guys have enjoyed this, right? Uh, I'm sure all our guests have been listening to all the podcasts and just like devouring them and doing like Bible studies around them and stuff. So, but, but let me just give you a little bit of a review, catch everybody up and maybe bring some of the main points back into the forefront of our minds. Uh, and really, my beautiful wife kicked this series off a few weeks ago uh, with our anchor scripture for our time, which is found in John 1 verse 5. And it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this whole principle that we've really been trying to get into the DNA of who we are is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is for the dirty parts of us. It's for the dirty, hidden things that we don't necessarily want people to see. Jesus wants to get into those spots and bring light that darkness cannot overtake. And so we've been really enjoying this truth that there is no darkness that light cannot change. And last week specifically, we looked at a dark moment in the life of David. We we looked at a moment in the life of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David encounters a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And and he sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. 
And he made a decision that had consequences that were of a massive proportion. And we talked about the fact that our circumstances do not create our mess. Our circumstances reveal our mess. Our circumstances don't create our mess. Our circumstances reveal our mess. How many of you know that if David was a man of righteous purity, seeking the purity of heaven in his eyes and his minds, that that chapter in 2 Samuel would not be there? Because he would have seen Bathsheba, closed his eyes, ran downstairs, called his accountability partners, and been like, homies, get over here before I do something that's going to wreck everything. But because he had a hidden mess, the circumstances, the atmosphere just got right enough to where his hidden mess became a very public failure. And so we leaned into the truth that we need to confess the hidden mess and take back the trap. We need to confess the hidden mess and take back the trap. And and to use the the incredible, powerful, atmosphere-shifting weapon of worship. And to step into an environment where the devil has set the atmosphere just right for that hidden thing to come soaring out of us and saying, I'm not going to be subject to my atmosphere. I'm going to subject my atmosphere to the truth. Because our circumstances don't create our mess. They reveal our mess. And we want to take another step this morning in this journey of talking about this this. This gospel that's created that Jesus came for the dirty parts of us. Because how many of you know that Jesus didn't come for just the dirty parts of us, but he came for the dirty parts of all of us. Not just here, not just the people that are in this room, but but the dirty parts of our city. The the dirty parts of our culture. That, That the gospel of Jesus is not for the clean, for the perfect, for the nice, for the neat, but is for the hurting. It's for the messy because he's a God of transformation. He is the God of light and the light shines in the darkness and darkness has not overcome it. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read kind of a long passage of scripture. Go to second Kings. We're going to start in chapter six and we're going to end in chapter 20. That's a joke, but we are going to start in chapter six. 2 Kings chapter 6, when you get there, say amen. One person's there. Man, y'all would lose in the Bible sword drill that we used to do back in the day. All right? Some of y'all don't even know what I'm talking about. Some of you, though, you remember back in Bible school or back in Sunday school when you were a kid, you would face back to back, and they would say a scripture, and you have to, like, get there real fast, and you would read it, and if you read it first, you got a baseball card. That's what I'm talking about. 2 Kings chapter 6. Are you there? Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Are you thankful for the descriptions and the word of God? The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Armenians are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elijah warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram, and he summoned all his officers and demanded of them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? 
None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elijah, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel every word you speak, even in your bedroom. Everybody say, yo. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so he can so I can send men to capture him. And the report came back. He is in Dothan. And then he sent horses and chariots and strong forces there. And they went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? And the servant asked, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I want to talk to you this morning on the topic of the moment when you realize you're surrounded. The moment you realize you're surrounded. Have you ever felt surrounded? Anybody? Man, I've never been surrounded like Elisha was surrounded, but I have had some moments that I think feel like what it feels like to be surrounded. Have you ever felt hopeless and helpless? Totally defeated? No way out. Nowhere to get help. Man, you are on your own, isolated on an island. Unless somebody comes and rescues you, you are done. Has anybody felt that? Let me tell you about one of the times I felt that. 2005 World Mandate. How many of you have been in World Mandate? Our world mandate, man, world mandate's an amazing thing. It's, our, it's a conference our movement puts together. It's incredibly cool. You need to register for it, worldmandate.com. You need to be there. World mandate in 2005 was at the Waco Convention Center. It's grown since then. But we're, it was a couple of thousand people at the Waco Convention Center. And someone had the idea that we should open the conference with a shofar blast. Okay. Now, word had traveled through the church that I played trumpet. So people just thought, okay, this dude played trumpet so he can play the shofar. Now, if you don't know what a shofar is, it's like an ancient trumpet made from a ram's horn that's used all over the Bible. Like you guys ever heard of the the story of Jericho and they like walk around the city. You know what I mean? Seven times, and then the seventh day, they walk around it seven times, and on the seventh time, on the seventh day, they all shouted, and the priest blew trumpets. They blew shofars, and when they did, what happened? The wall fell down, right? So, man, people are all fired up in prayer meetings being like, oh, man, let's just have a shofar blast at the beginning of world mandate, and the walls are going to come down, and God's going to come, right? And so they're like, hey, who can do that? They're like, well, J.D. can do it because he played trumpet in high school. He can do it. And so somebody comes to me like, dude, you want to play shofar? Well, man, I'm like, what's a shofar? All right. And they explain it to me. And then they hand me this like big ram's horn thing that has a hole in it. that's like the size of a pin. And they're like, you need to play this thing. Can't you do it? It's like a trumpet. I'm like, dude, this does not look like the trumpet I used to play. But I started practicing, right? I was honored to be asked to do this. And, man, they were explaining to me the build-up to the whole thing. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a powerful moment. They made this video, and then someone's going to come up and read a scripture. And then they were going to pray. And I was going to, like, emerge from the darkness and just hold up the trumpet on the microphone and just let out the most transformational trumpet blast in the history of shofar blast, right? And they're breaking it down for me. And I'm, like, easy to get inspired. So I am so pumped about 
this moment. And I'm practicing and practicing and practicing. And I got to the point where I was pretty proficient. Like I could just like pick it up and I could actually make a sound. And it was what it was supposed to sound like. And, and so I was feeling pretty confident about myself. And we even had a rehearsal where we ran through it from top to bottom. And it went without a hitch. It was awesome. It was beautiful. And so I'm going into that night thinking this is going to be the coolest thing I've ever been a part of in my life. But then I started feeling surrounded because the moment was set. Man, it was powerful too, man, I'll tell you. Robert Herbert, who was the college pastor at the time, was praying this prayer. He's now the pastor of the Antioch that's in San Diego, and he's, like, praying this prayer. And, man, my, my guts were shaking. You ever been, you ever had that moment where someone is just, like, filleting you with their prayer? You're like, oh, ha, ha, Yes! And so I am like so fired up, man. And then the moment comes, right? I mean, you should have felt the room, dude. People are just like surrendered to Jesus, so focused on him, just like ready to worship. And I walk out. I could still see it, man. The lights were all like blue. And, you know, the haze was going. And like I walk out on the stage. It's just nobody on the stage but me and one mic. I walk up to that mic. shake it off. Nothing happened. Ain't no walls fall down. Ain't no sound heard, man. The greatest failure of my life. And I remember after blowing air in front of thousands of people by myself, I remember just turning around. With my head down, defeated, hopeless, helpless, alone, angry, frustrated. Walking, just walking back, be like, man, you're stupid so far. You're stupid. And to this day, man, to this day, that's 2005, man. To this day, people will come up to me and be like, yo, J.D., man, hey, man, you remember that time when, when you broke wind at World Man Eight? Ah. And I'm like, man, shut up, man. But that walk from the mic to the rest of my life has felt like I was surrounded. Have you ever had a moment that feels hopeless and helpless? Have you ever been in a situation where there literally is no way out? I mean, maybe it's with your family. Maybe... You are in such conflict with your family, you can't even call them anymore. And the thought of even talking to them, you're like, I'm hopeless, I'm helpless. There's no way. There's no way out of the, the, the turmoil, the complexity, and you feel surrounded. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe you're buried in so much debt. Maybe you banked everything on an investment that was going to get you out of where you are that was going to change you and your family's history, and now every single penny is gone, evaporated. You feel hopeless and helpless. You feel surrounded. So, so, so what do we do when we feel surrounded? Where do we go? What's our play? How are we supposed to engage with the very real fact that there will be moments in life where we feel hopeless and helpless. 
in our story this morning, Elijah, he was God's guy. God would speak to him and and he would then relay those messages to the to the leaders of the people of God. And, and, and in through that communication, God would protect the people of Israel from oncoming attack. Now, this is not what I'm preaching about, but I wonder if anybody's thankful for a God who keeps you out of trouble. And so Elisha was communicating from the heart of God to the people of God to keep them out of trouble. They, they were in war with these different people groups, and God was leading them through this maze of complexity and, and keeping them out of such and such a place so that they would not have to feel the pressure of oncoming attack. How many of you are thankful that God keeps us out of trouble. But this king, the king of Aram, became enraged, angry, frustrated because he's making these strategic plays. And it seems like the people of Israel are one step ahead all the time. They devise an incredible scheme to, 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 to trap, to, to, to create like a, a, an opportunity for an ambush and instead of the people of Israel walking through where everyone thought they were going to walk through, the man of God had warned them, do not go to that place. And so they would go to another place. And so the king of the, the, the Arameans was saying, like, I'm frustrated. Who is telling them where we're going? And so he gathers all of his leaders together and he's like, for real, who's the spy? Who's with them? And they're like, chill, bro, we're with you. But they've got Elisha, man. And he knows everything, like even knows what you say in your bedroom. You better watch out if I was you. And so he sends out spies. Now, isn't it interesting? This is a little side note. Isn't it interesting that the man of God would always hear where the enemies of God were going, yet they sent spies to find him? So do you think that he was found by accident? And it's interesting to me that they found him in Dothan. Now, Dothan means the place of two wells. It was a famous grazing land and a place of provision. It had a reputation of a place of refreshment because there was abundant water there. But this is not the first time that somebody found themselves, a man of God found themselves surrounded in Dothan. Dothan was also the place where Joseph was thrown into a well by his brothers and left for dead. A place that was the beginning of a captivity that would lead to great victory. How many of you know that what you see is not the end of the story? Dothan is a place of unlikely victories, a place where it seems like all's lost to set you up for the greatest victory in your life. Dothan. So they find Elisha in Dothan. And they organize their entire army and horses and chariots and surround him. And, and there's no way out. They, they are literally surrounded. There's no way in. There's no way out. And his little sidekick, his homie, his servant wakes up before him and walks outside and sees that they're surrounded. Now, 
he goes and wakes up Elisha, and he, he's super panicked, right? I mean, don't you relate with his response? His response is, yo, what are we supposed to do? That's my version. That's basically what it says. Like, What shall we do? Isn't it interesting that he asked the question, what shall we do? I think it reveals where he understood his authority to be. You see, his servant, Elisha's servant, was living under the principles of earthly authority. Authority meaning who has power and control. And so when he looked out with his physical eyes and understanding of earthly authority, he was like, I've got to find my strength in a way, become strategic in a way, craft my wisdom in a way that I can get myself out of this circumstance. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We find ourselves surrounded and ask this very same question. What shall we do? What am I supposed to do now? How am I supposed to get out of this place now? Where am I supposed to go? Who am I supposed to call? And the pressure of being surrounded is really the pressure of being isolated. Because you're alone, you come to the very real place of understanding there is no hope. It's not just a sense of hopeless and helpless. It is hopeless and helpless. There is no way out. You are surrounded. What what shall we do? And Elijah responds very different in this very same moment. Because Elijah was not walking into the circumstance in earthly authority. He was walking from the circumstance of the kingdom of heaven's authority. And so when he saw the very same moment through the eyes of different authority, he saw something completely different. And so he gets up and he doesn't see that his enemies are surrounding him. He sees that his enemies are surrounded. And so he, it's amazing to me that when his servant comes to him and says, what shall we do? Elisha doesn't ask his servant to do anything. Let me say that again. When, 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 uh, when a, the servant of God comes to Elijah and says, what shall we do? Elijah's response is, is not for him to do anything, but he just says, God, open his eyes. Open his eyes. Let him see what you're doing. And it says that the eyes of the servant was open and he could see that the, the armies of heaven, angel armies had surrounded their enemies. I want to lean into something on this point because the truth is that the angel armies were there when the servant could see them or not. How many of you know that when Elisha prayed for his servant's eyes to be opened, that was not then the call from heaven for the angel armies to come down and surround the enemies. The enemies were already surrounded. He just couldn't see it. He he could not see what God was already doing. So I wonder 
How many areas of our lives that feel like we're surrounded, we feel hopeless and helpless, and we're like, God, what shall we do? And the real prayer is, God, would you open my eyes to what you're doing? Because the truth is, is that we serve a God that's undefeated when surrounded. I'm going to say that one more time. Y'all better start shouting me down because that was a good word. Our God, Jesus, is undefeated when surrounded. He's undefeated. He has never lost a battle ever. He's never come into a situation that was too much, too heavy. There was no army that was too big. No moment, no moment that was too overwhelming. Our God is undefeated when surrounded. There's no pressure too great, no circumstance too deep, no debt too large, no family that's too broken. Our God is undefeated when surrounded. And it doesn't matter what we see. Our enemies are already surrounded if we see it or not. So I think that we need to start living from a place of the unseen versus leveraging our emotional health on the scene. I I, I think we should stop feeling the unnecessary pressure of being surrounded when our enemies are actually surrounded. So, so when it gets dark, we might need to get up, dust ourselves off a little bit, pin our shoulders back, and remind ourselves where our help comes from. Because there's a scripture, there's an old ancient worship song in the Psalms. It's in Psalms 121, and it echoes this very truth that Elijah was demonstrating to his servant that we get to learn from. And it says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? And it goes on to say that my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and of earth. The battle has already been won. The battle has already been won. The fight is not in your hands. The fight is in your eyes. What do you see? When you're surrounded, what do you see? When, you're, when you feel the pressure, what do you see? Do, do you lift your eyes to the mountain? Do you look to where your help comes from? Do you say, God, open my eyes so I can see what you're already doing? When I think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, I come face to face with the very real truth that the enemies of Jesus, the devil, probably thought That he had Jesus surrounded. When Jesus was left by his friends, turned in by one of his closest friends, and then taken up chains, put on him, they beat him. They treated him worse than a common criminal. The devil probably thought he had him surrounded. He probably thought that Jesus was feeling hopeless and helpless. What the devil couldn't see is what Jesus could. Is that they were going to beat him. They were going to hang him on a cross. And on that cross, he was going to pay the price of our sin. My 
sin, the things that I've done that separate me from God. He was going to take upon himself what he didn't do so that I can have relationship that I don't deserve. And when he was hanging on the cross, the devil was like, we finally got him. We got him. We got him surrounded. There's no way out. There's no hope. And he died on that cross and he yelled, it is finished. And as we've said so many times in this house, that was a declaration that everything in your life that's broken is now finished because of the cross of Jesus Christ. They took him off that cross and they put him in a grave. They put him in a pile of rocks and they sealed it. They left him. He was surrounded. Three days later, the unseen took the fight to the scene. And Jesus came out of that grave. And he conquered sin and death. And he made a statement with his life that no weapon formed against me will prosper. And then that becomes a promise for us that no weapon formed against you will prosper. Because we serve a God and we live underneath the covering of a God that's undefeated when surrounded. So some of you need to realize that when it gets dark and it feels like there's no hope, you need to check your address because you might just be in Dothan. You, you might just be in Dothan. You might be in a place of unlikely breakthrough, a place where people have experienced the loneliness and isolation of being surrounded only to realize that God was telling a greater story than that one chapter in their life and that their enemies were the ones that were surrounded. And some of us might need to stand up this morning and realize that no matter what I feel, no matter what I think, no matter what I'm convinced about, my enemies are surrounded because my God is undefeated when surrounded. Jesus is undefeated when surrounded. So this is what I want you to to take and to say. Have no fear. Your victory is here somebody have no fear your victory is here can you say that with me have no fear your victory is here can we say it like we mean it have no fear your victory is here can we stand to our feet and declare it have no fear your victory is here come on one more time like you mean it have Your victory is here. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm asking right now that you would fill our hearts with the unbelievable, unshakable truth that we have nothing to fear, that our victory is here, that no matter what we can see, you can see that our enemies are the ones that are surrounded, that there's no weapon formed against us that will prosper. There's no scheme of the enemy, no complexity in our personal lives, no dynamic in our bank account that will quench the goodness of God in our lives, that will suffocate the hope of the gospel from reigning true and transforming who we are. God, 
defeated when surrounded. And God, I'm asking that right now that you would fill our hearts with courage, that you would fill our souls with life, and that no matter what is surrounding us right now, that you would open our eyes and that we would see that no weapon formed against us will prosper. Let's worship Jesus.